You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. Let's pray and turn our attention to the book of Ruth. Lord, we now as we turn to your word, Lord, we've already, we've already sang truth, Lord. We, we have sung of your goodness and your glory and what you have done through Christ. And now as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes to see you, that you would, oh, love your, Lord, your, your word is so lovely, that, Lord, you would open it up to us. And, Lord, in doing so, it would just be that we fall more in love with you, that we would just be amazed at you, we would be amazed at how you've pieced together your word, and that we would exalt you. May you build your church this morning through your word, and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and the church says, amen, amen. If you uh, remember, the book of Ruth is written in such a way that's unique. It doesn't necessarily mention God a whole lot. It doesn't show, you know, Red Sea's parting and all these miracles, but it's written in such a way that it's training our eyes to see just how God is at work in the daily happenings of life how he's bringing about his good purposes in big ways to affect the salvation of his people both as a whole, but also how he's working in the the seemingly mundane, daily, little happenings of life to prove his faithfulness over and over and over again. And Ruth helps us to see that. It trains our eyes to see God at work in the daily happenings of life. Last week, we saw that there are five things to be looking for as you make your way through the book of Ruth. I even heard this past week that there were people who were reading through Ruth and going back and digging in and and reading ahead. And I I encourage you to do that. It's a short book, uh, four chapters. And if you do that, here are five things to be looking for. Just very quickly, I'll just remind us of this. The, The Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness, what is called His hesed. His hesed, his covenant kindness towards his people. We see the Lord's mercy and grace poured out upon undeserving people. We see the Lord's providence, which is his invisible hand of working in our lives in every part of life. That's his providence. Fourth, we see how the Lord works so much of his good by using people. That as people reflect the hesed heart of God. It shines brightly in this sin-broken world that we live in. And then lastly, how we are reminded of how the Lord redeems the hopeless, the people who are unable to save themselves. We are ultimately pointed to Christ, our Redeemer. And so we're to be looking for Christ even in the Old Testament book of Ruth. And I think today is going gonna, gonna to really show us that. And so so as we're reminded that Ruth and Naomi's God is our God, as we see him working all these wonderful things, it should fill our hearts with hope in seeing just how faithful and good and kind and able he is for those who turn to him. And if that was their God, he's our God. So keep that in your heart and mind this morning as we make our way through Ruth chapter 2. So in light of that, let's read Ruth chapter 2. It's fairly long. It's 23 verses. So just follow with me as best you can as we go through this. So Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, And he said to the reapers, 
the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Verse 14, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her go glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles of her, for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took, took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right. The very beginning of the book of Ruth in chapter 1 begins with this feeling of of emptiness. If you remember, the, the lives of Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, are broken. They are experiencing the sting of bitter circumstances because of sin, brokenness in the world, and in part because of their own sinful waywardness as they sought to try to find good outside of God. They, if you remember, if you, if you weren't here last week, they they left God's promised land, or Naomi did with her husband, Elimelech, and, and ventured off into an enemy territory to try to find good for themselves. And instead, now, their husbands have died, so they are widows. They find themselves powerless to change their circumstances. They are poor and have no provision and no one to care for them. But what we saw last week 
We saw God in His great grace. He ended the famine in His land, stirring Naomi to return to God's promised land. And we saw Ruth do something incredible. Ruth committed herself to God and to God's people, beginning with her commitment to Naomi, her mother-in-law. So when you get to the end of chapter 1, Ruth and Naomi have returned to God's promised land and in a sense have returned to God himself. And we're told it's the beginning of the barley harvest, which represents God's blessing. He's bringing life where there was death, right? There's fullness now that is beginning to come to where those who were, who were empty, good and unexpected things are beginning to happen in Bethlehem. And so you are left with this hope-filled anticipation that is this good, is all of this good that we're beginning to see happen, is that going to spill out over into Ruth and Naomi's lives? And the beginning of chapter 2 keeps building that hope-filled anticipation. And so that's the first thing we see in verse 1. Just one verse, first point, a hope-filled beginning. A hope-filled beginning. At first glance, verse 1 can seem like it's out of place. As I started reading, you might have even thought that, like, that was kind of weird. That, was, that seemed out of place. But it's purposely placed there. And it's intended to grab at our attention before we continue to read the rest of the chapter. We're given what I like to call a gold nugget. We're given a gold nugget. The, the writer of the book of Ruth lets us into something, almost like a foreshadowing, so something to put in your memory because later on in the story, it's going to have a part to play and it's probably going to have an important part to play, okay? So in verse 1, we're told that Naomi actually has a living relative of her husband who is part of the family clan of Elimelech. And why is that important? Because this relative has special responsibilities and obligations to in caring for relatives who are in need. This relative has special, special responsibility to care for a relative who becomes in need, that, that to, and not nearly just to care for them, but to redeem their life should their life fall into the pits of despair. That's what this relative's role is to be. So, so they're called, the, the, the role of this relative is called a kinsman redeemer. Naomi, at the end of the story, reveals the word. It's, it's redeemer. They were called a redeemer in this family. Someone who redeems another family member's life out of the pits of despair. And then on top of that, we're let in on just what kind of man this guy is. Just what kind of guy he is. We're told he's a worthy man. And I just love this. I love, I hope you love just digging in the Word. I love to just dig in and see all these things. Literally, those words in the original are gibor hayil. Gibor hayil, meaning a mighty man of valor. That's who this man is. He's a gibor hayil. He's a mighty man of valor, a worthy man. Those words describe an honorable guy, a noble man of character and ability. Not only, not only is he noble in, what he, in his character, but man, he's able to do things. He's able to make things happen. He's a gibor hayil. Here's what's interesting. It's the same word used by the angel of the Lord when he came to Gideon in Judges chapter 6. And the angel of the Lord called Gideon a gibor hayil, mighty man of valor. The reason why the Lord called him that was because the Lord knew the plan he had for Gideon to rescue his people. And so you're left immediately saying, oh my, this guy's a Gibor Hayil? This guy is, is a man of valor? He's worthy? Is he going to be used to rescue? On top of that, names meant something in the Bible. And Boaz means in him is strength. So, so the hope-filled anticipation builds as you begin to wonder, is this man going to redeem Naomi and Ruth from the pits of despair that they find themselves in? And we're told this up front, the very first verse, so that now as the story unfolds, 
And we begin to recognize the invisible hand of God working to lead and direct the story of his people. That's why we're told this up front. So it's almost like we're given this information about a possible rescuer in verse 1. And then in verse 2, we zoom back into the life of Ruth and Naomi, and they are back in Bethlehem, but are in great need of finding favor from someone who will help them because they are helpless. They are helpless. And on top of that, they're living in a time when, when help seems like it's nowhere and wickedness is everywhere. Sinfulness and selfish ambition are rampant. So will they find favor in this wicked world? That's kind of what you're left asking. Will they find favor in this wicked world? And that leads us to our second point, verses 2 through 7. Needing favor in a wicked world. In verse 2, Ruth sets out in hopes to find a field in Bethlehem where the owner of that field will look upon her, and she says, with favor. And she's meaning to say, it's, it's that, that word favor, it's, it's undeserved favor. It's, it's that, that she's hopeful to find someone who will look upon her with grace giving what she doesn't deserve. That's what she's hopeful to find and and that they will allow her to glean, to go into their field and glean, which essentially meant to allow someone to come in and pick up the leftover grain. To glean was a part of the Old Testament law. And it instructed God's people to leave the edges of their fields unharvested, and not to pick up what was dropped while they were harvesting, so that the poor, the sojourner, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widows, every person who was considered an outcast of society could come and gather it up for food. It was God's plan to care for outsiders. In Deuteronomy 24 In God instructing his people to allow the needy to glean from their fields, God's people themselves were to remember as they allowed that. Because you could imagine the temptation, like, I really want that edge of my field to be harvested. You can imagine the temptation, right? I mean, how tempted are we with the things we have, right? Like, I don't know if I really want to give all of that over. Man, the the, the temptation would have been great. But God wanted them to remember something, to remember that they too were at once foreigners and the outcasts of society when they were in Egypt. And yet God provided kindly for them. And it's to motivate their heart with a kindness towards the outcast that reflects the undeserved kindness of God. That's what gleaning was supposed to do. But gleaning was difficult work. It was hard work. It meant you had to go into, it didn't mean like you were just handed it. You had to go and work in the hot sun all day. So that was the first part that was, that was difficult about it. But remember when this is taking place. This is taking place in the times of the judges. So not only is it hot and difficult, but it's dangerous. People, we're told, if you remember, we're told in Judges that there is no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. People are doing whatever they want. Wickedness is rampant throughout the land, so there is no guarantee that anyone will even let her glean from the field and obey God's laws. And whoever she does come across, there is no guarantee that they won't try to hurt her or take advantage of her. That's the world she's living in. So going out into the fields was hard work, but it was dangerous work. And on top of being a single woman in a wicked land, Ruth is a Moabite. So she's, she's not just a foreigner. She is a despised and unwelcome foreigner. So she had a lot going against her. This outcast of society who's hopeful to find favor with someone. So when Ruth goes out to glean in hopes of finding this favor among God's people, it actually reveals a lot about her. She was stepping out in faith in Yahweh, who she has now declared is her God. 
She may have been a Moabite by heritage, but in heart and in faith, she was now one who was trusting in God. Trusting in God, trusting that He would provide a generous, God-fearing, law-honoring, covenant-keeping landowner who would grant her grace. Unmerited, undeserved, unexpected kindness. She is hoping that God will provide a God-honoring man. And in verse 3, we're told she sets out to, to find a field to glean in. And I love this. I hope as we read this, you were like, oh, what? that's interesting. So she sets out to find a field to glean in. And it says, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz of the clan of Elimelech. The man that we heard about in verse 1, a mighty man of valor, a righteous, noble, God-fearing, law-honoring, covenant-keeping man, she happens upon his field. The wording is supposed to surprise you. It's supposed to surprise us. <laughs> it's not communicating luck. That's one thing for sure. As you read that, it's, it wasn't that she was lucky, like, oh, she's lucky. No, she, it's not communicating luck because the Bible doesn't believe in luck. So it wasn't just like the universe aligned and everything just happened and all of a sudden it arrived and she arrived at the right field. When it says that she happened to come to this place, it literally means her chance chanced. Like in, in, the, in the Bible, sometimes it, dub, it uses double words. And it's to emphasize her chance, chance. Like this was an accident. She, it, it wasn't, she wasn't purposefully looking at this field. It was an accident, an accidental chance on her part that she ended up here. She didn't know who owned this field. In her mind, as she looked out at all the fields, for some reason, this field stood out and seemed like the wise way to go. She had no clue what good awaited her at this field. To the human eye, she accidentally happened upon this field. But remember, the, this book is training our eyes to say, oh no, nay, nay, right? Nay, nay, says I. No, that was not merely just happenstance. That's God's invisible hand at work. That's what it's supposed to do to us. God is at work in the daily happenings of life, even the moments when it seems as if that was a chance. The writer intends to draw our attention to the surprising, beautiful providence of God. That though you may not see Him, though there may not be a whirlwind around every decision you make, God is at work. Even in the picking of a field to labor in. Praise God. Praise God. So it's supposed to drive, grab at our attention that he is, his invisible hand is at work to bring about his good plans and glorious purposes in the lives of his people. I, I almost, as I was reading this and studying and preparing the sermon, it was almost as if I could literally just see a grin. Like, like you could imagine the writer of the book of Ruth, as he writes that, just grinning, just grinning, because he intends that the attentive reader, as we're reading this, he intends for us to see the sovereign grace of God at work in the lives of the, the, the seemingly simple and mundane circumstances of life, that there is no such thing as chance detached from the plans of God. As we see this in Scripture first, first, it should cause us to stand back in wonder and awe at this good and great and gracious God who is working for our good. And as we ponder how wonderfully good He is, we are then reminded that this God who is providentially involved fully in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, these two women who have nothing. By world standards, everyone would say, they're not important to, to, to the world. Why would we exert energy towards them? They're not important. But yet God's caring for them. No one is left, un no one is left unwatched. 
No one is left on their own, even those who seem the most on the outside of society. And as we see that, as we see that this God who's working in the lives of Ruth and Naomi, these nobodies, and then as we consider our lives, how we're just another somebody in the midst of billions of people, and we could be tempted to say, does my life even matter? And the Bible just echoes and declares, yes, your God cares for you, and He's working for your good. And though you may not see Him, though red seas aren't parting, that's not what you have to look for. Just know the invisible hand of your God is working for your good and for His glory. That's what we are to take away as we see this, that in all of the, the chances and accidental happenings, He is already working already directing, already leading your steps and your circumstances to bring about the fullness of His glory in the midst of your uncertain circumstances. Praise God. Oh my goodness, I can't tell you how many times that truth alone has anchored my silly, wayward, wandering heart in the midst of trouble. Lord, I know you are good and you are doing good in the midst of this. Though I cannot see your hand, train my eyes to see your hand. The very next verse just builds upon this. Verse 4. Oh, I love this. Verse 4. So she happens upon the field, and then the next words, And behold, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Ruth randomly but sovereignly ends up at this field and now the writer of Ruth says behold behold stop what you're doing and watch this this is incredible behold look and see what your God is doing Boaz the man of valor arrives at the field oh my oh my may the Lord teach us to behold to behold the invisible hand of God just piecing things together may we never just say oh man that was luck No, may we say, oh, that was such grace, such grace of the Lord. And we get a glimpse of just what this man is like. He really is truly a God-honoring man. He really, truly is. As he's walking up, that's what I love. Precious saints, when you read the Word of God, pay attention to every detail. There's a reason why it's there. Our God is so purposeful. He doesn't waste a line of his word, does he? So, so, so as we dig in, just know, okay, let's dig in. What, let's, every part that you have for us, Lord, what are we supposed to see here? So as Boaz is walking up, even up to his workers in the field, he greets them with a blessing of God. He says, the Lord be with you. I don't know how many times you've been greeted that way when you arrived at work. Probably zero, right? That's the world we live in, that, and that's what they're saying. The world we live in, that's not normal. Something different about this guy. Something different. He's shining brightly like a diamond in the midst of this wicked world where everybody's doing whatever they want and they're disobeying God and they hate people and they're unkind. But yet this man shows up to the field, to these workers laboring in the field, and he says, oh, the Lord be with you. And his workers respond back to him. It's not something they're like, whoa, why did all of a sudden he showed up? You know, you see this girl Ruth and I trying to impress her or something? No, this is who this guy is. How do they respond to him? Oh, Boaz and the Lord bless you. They give it right back to him. These are the days of judges. Men acted terrible. This man's kindness is meant to grab at our hearts. He himself is reflecting the loving kindness of the Lord, and it shines brightly in a darkened world. We are to take notice of his heart and his heart that he's about to have for this outcast Moabite woman. And we're to say, oh man, I know it's not just this guy. That that reminds me of how good and kind my God is. It's supposed to grab us. As Boaz reflects the hesed heart of God, the undeserved loving kindness of the Lord. And so the anticipation just keeps building. Will this man, this godly, 
Gabor Hayil type of guy. Look at him, just solid type of guy. Will this man give Ruth favor? And that leads us to our third point. Finding favor in the field of the Lord. Verses 8 through 16. Finding favor in the field of the Lord. One of Boaz's workers informs him of Ruth being the young Moabite woman who had returned with Naomi. So you get the sense that, that Boaz has heard of Ruth already. Right? Many people, whenever Ruth and Naomi were entering into Bethlehem, it, it, we were told that the city was stirred up. And so, so there are probably many people who know of Ruth and Naomi returning. And, and the worker goes on to say that she asked to glean in their field and she's been working all day. And, and what we see next, in the turn of events, Boaz begins to pour out generous provision for Ruth, the undeserved favor, the grace that she so desperately needed. Just listen, listen in verse 8 to this outpouring of grace. He speaks to her with this expression of honor and tender care. He calls her my daughter. So almost revealing his heart's intention of good towards her. He wasn't going to take advantage of her. I think that's what that's communicating. He wasn't going to take advantage of her. And then he instructs her not to look to glean in any other field. Don't look anywhere else for your provision. Don't go running off into any other field, which almost echoes Ruth chapter one, right? When they had sought good in other fields outside of God's fields, but, but not any longer. So don't go looking in any other fields, but instead stay in this field. And he guards her. He guards her by, by charging the young men working in the field not to touch her. So he's looking out for her purity. He, he actually cares about who she is, her purity. When she becomes thirsty, he says that she can come and drink freely of his refreshing water. And on top of all that, look, look at how beautiful this is. On top of all that, at mealtime, Boaz invites this outcast foreigner to come and sit at his table with his people, have his roasted grain and take of his bread and wine until she is satisfied. Precious saints, I, I hope as you read that, hope as you read that, that you hear the whispers of the gospel. Did you hear it? As we read about how Boaz is treating this outcast foreigner woman, undeserved love and kindness, did you hear the whispers of the gospel? The Lord is training us, training our eyes to see to see his good news of salvation, even in this story. When I read this, I can't help but think of Christ and the beginning of his ministry when one of the first things that he does as a sign of what he was going to do on a greater scale is he goes to a field with a, with a water well and meets an outcast woman of an outcast people and there, he invites her to drink of his living water, and he makes her his own. She didn't do anything to earn it. She was helpless. And he entered into this foreign, outcast, broken woman's life and drew her near. And there's more. There's more gospel whispers. Look at this. Look at this, precious saints. Ruth chapter 1 begins with the man Elimelech who is tasked to lead his wife. But what does he do? Does he lead her in ways of righteousness? No, he leads her astray and they are left to suffer the outcome of their sinful way waywardness. But God in his grace provides Boaz now. Boaz, a greater Elimelech, come from Bethlehem who is faithful to God who shines brightly in the midst of a wicked world and gives of himself in undeserved favor, grace, to care 
for helpless and needy Gentile outsider Ruth. Meeting her in her great need, caring about her purity, calling her to come and drink of his refreshing water and inviting her to his table as one of his own to be satisfied, we're told. Precious saints, see this connection. Hear the echoes of Christ. The Bible begins with a man named Adam tasked to lead his wife in ways of righteousness. But does he? No, he leads her astray. And they, along with their offspring, are left to suffer the outcome of their sinful waywardness. But God provided Jesus, a greater Adam, a greater Boaz, come from Bethlehem, who is faithful to God, who shines brightly in the midst of a wicked world and gives of himself on the cross in undeserved favor, grace to meet us in our sin brokenness. We were the Gentile outsiders, aren't we? Aren't we the Gentile outsiders of the Bible? We are the Gentile outsiders of the Bible, of God's people, slaves to sin with hearts wandering the wilderness of this world, helpless to save ourselves and sacrificing of himself so that we could be washed clean from the stains of sin. He cares about our purity, doesn't he? So that we could be washed clean, he gives his own blood for us. He cares about our purity, calling us to come and drink of his living water, inviting us to his table as one of his own to feast and be satisfied. Oh, precious saints, the bread and wine at the table of Boaz points us to the table of Christ, precious saints. It points us to the table of Christ of how the outsider, the outsider, every single one of us, the outsider is brought into the family of Christ and brought to his table to take the bread, the body, and the wine, the blood of Christ and be satisfied. Isn't that precious? Isn't that beautiful from the words of the Lord here that even the Old Testament, the Lord is training our eyes to see this beautiful story of salvation that goes all the way back from Genesis and goes all the way to, to Revelation, precious saints. He's training our eyes to see his goodness in every step of the way and how every single moment of those points us ahead to our precious Savior, the greater Adam, the greater Elimelech, the greater Boaz, Jesus. Oh, precious saints, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? I hope I'm not the only one getting excited. I hear some amens. Oh, man, that should just, oh, my goodness. I just want to open the Word and read more. I just want to read more of the Word. How, how are we to respond? Ruth, Ruth shows us how we should respond. It should, let, it, let it just wash over you. This is how we are to respond. Ruth, in verse 10, falls to her face and asks, Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why would I find grace that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. I'm an unwanted outsider. I'm a Gentile among the Jews. Why would you want me? Precious saints, aren't those fitting words for those who recognize I don't deserve, I don't deserve any of this. As we're, as we're singing our songs this morning, as you're gathering with the saints, as you're coming to the table of Christ this morning, as we, as we come and open his word, as we listen, is that your response, precious saints? Is this your response? Why have I found favor in your eyes? Who am I? Who am I that you would look upon me and notice me? out of millions lost, that you would set your affection upon me and bring me in to drink and be satisfied with you, Lord Jesus. Why have I found favor in your eyes? That, that is the proper, appropriate response for the people of the Lord, isn't it? Isn't that 
The right response, precious saints. And if we aren't responding that way, I know there are all sorts of cares. I mean, even precious ones, as you care for your children even now, and as you, as you labor and you're coming in and it's difficult just to get ready in the morning and you have all these worries and all these things fixed upon your heart, precious saints, ask the Lord through His Holy Spirit, Lord, remind me, remind me of just who I am apart from you, but not so I can be downcast, so then I can remember of just how great it is to be brought into your family, so that then I sing with joy. I remember that all of this is undeserved. Who am I to be a part of this family? Who am I? And the result is not downcast and just saying, oh, who am I? But joy. Joy flows from a heart, a humbled heart before the Lord that recognizes His grace. Precious saints, may, that, may, the, may the Lord do that work in us. You know, it's not that I just want us to be like an expressive church, like, you know, amen and, and, and clapping and, and, you know, hands raised. But I, I, I read the Bible and I read these types of moments and I say, how can we not be expressive people? Right? How can I not say amen to that? How can I not lift my hands? If I lift my hands when USA Soccer scores a goal, or when I lift my hands because my team scores a touchdown or, or a basket, oh my, and I like sports, precious saints. I'm a Spurs fan. But if I, if I am more excited and glad and joyful when I see that happen, something is out of place. Because when the Christian looks upon, when we turn our eyes away from the Spurs game or whatever, whatever, and we turn our eyes to what our Savior has done for us, it demands a response. The angels cry out, glory, glory. They can't contain it. The kings become a baby. What is happening? And they can't contain themselves. Glory. Heaven itself, angels crying out, the hosts of heaven, creation itself, Jesus says, would cry out if his people fail to do so. Oh my, precious saints, remember what the Lord has done. Look upon yourself and say, oh, and then look upon your precious Savior and say, who am I that you would notice me? Oh, may we live like that daily. Oh, oh. Ruth recognized the undeserved grace given by Boaz, and Boaz pointed out the evidence of grace already at work and in and through Ruth of her covenant faithfulness towards Naomi and her faith to leave Moab and her false gods for a land and a people she didn't even know. And Boaz highlights that the gracious provision for her was not merely because of him, but ultimately she has been cared for by God who deals kindly with those who turn to Him. Because she has turned to the Lord, listen to what he says in verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Do you think, precious saints, you will be satisfied by taking refuge in the wings of the God of the universe? I'm afraid that so many, that that's, the lost heart thinks that. They think they find something better outside of God himself. But the Bible says, no, you're broken. And you're drinking from a well that is, that is poisonous and bad for you and eventually you're going to feel it. But for those who come and take refuge under the wings of God, they will not be disappointed. Boaz knew. I love this. The, the word is so rich, precious saints. I wish we could take three hours and just walk through this past, this chapter, one chapter. I know you don't want that. That would not serve you but I wish we could. Boaz knew what it was like to be an outsider of God's people. Boaz knew what it was like to be an outsider of God's people. And how do we know that he knew that? 
How do we know that he knew that? How do we know that he, he, he knew what a blessing it was to be found in, ref, in taking refuge in the Lord? How do we know that he knew that that was such a big deal? Because when you look at the Gospel of Matthew, at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, there's a genealogy, and it's tracing a family line. And in that family line, Boaz is mentioned. And do you know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab. Rahab. Rahab was in Jericho when God's people, she's a Gentile, when God's people were on conquest in Joshua and they come to Jericho and they find Rahab, Rahab, an outcast woman, a Gentile woman, even an outcast in her own society. She was living sinfully even among those people, right? But she turns to the Lord in faith and it's demonstrated in her life for God's people and she's welcomed into the family of God. And who is her son? Boaz. Oh my goodness, the word is so rich. This man knew exactly what it was like to be an outcast welcomed into the family. This man's mom was an outcast welcomed into the family. The family of Christ is built upon outcasts welcomed into his family. Praise God. Praise God. Oh my. Deuteronomy 32.11, Boaz knew what it was like to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. Deuteronomy 32.11, speaking of God, it says this, He watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over his young. He spreads his wings and catches them and carries them in his feathers. What a beautiful picture of the God of the universe for his people. Catches you, holding you in his wings, it says. Oh, this truth of the Lord caring for those who take refuge under, the, under his wings must have had an incredible impact upon Ruth. Because we find later, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, we find out later that she becomes the great grandmother of King David. This, this nobody, foreigner, you could say immigrant, brought into the family of Christ and through her bloodline, King David. And, and I, I just can't help but think, I can't help but wonder how much she rehearsed those lines, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. How much as a, as a mom and then as a grandma and then as a great-grandmother does she rehearse those truths of outcast people taking refuge in Christ or in God and finding refuge in Him because, because of this. Her great-grandson, David, who wrote so many of the Psalms, and in so many of his psalm songs, they are filled with him singing about finding refuge in the wings of the Lord. <laughs> David knew where he came from. Oh, precious saints, may we not forget where we come from. Could she just, could, could Ruth just never move on from singing and thanking the Lord for taking her in when she did nothing to deserve it? So much so that her grandson is singing, great-grandson is singing the same truths. Precious saints, may that be true of us. From generation to generation, may we never tire of singing and remembering the Lord's undeserved kindness to the outcast. We close with a hope-filled ending. Hope-filled beginning, chapter 2. Hope-filled ending at the end of chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 ends just like Ruth chapter 1 with hope-filled anticipation. Boaz 
sends Ruth home after one day of gleaning with enough food to feed them for several weeks. And Naomi sees, Naomi now, Naomi who in chapter one was bitter to God. She was enduring bitter circumstances and she was bitter to God. She says, God has been against me. His hand has been against me. It's what Naomi said in chapter one. Look at how she responds now. Naomi sees the extravagant kindness and hear the change in her heart as she recognizes this was not merely the kindness of Boaz, but of the Lord her God. She says, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, chesed, chesed, whose covenantal kindness, whose steadfast love and faithfulness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi, her heart remembers God's covenant faithfulness, that he will not forsake those that are his as she sees his hesed heart reflected in Boaz's hesed heart. The Lord has not forsaken me, she says. Boaz's extravagant kindness is a reflection of what we have received in Christ's extravagant kindness. And as we look, as we look to what we have received in Him, in Christ, may our hearts join in with Naomi, being sturdied and comforted by His faithfulness towards us, though we find ourselves so often unfaithful or struggling or doubting in the midst of our bitter circumstances, he remains faithful and will not forsake his people. Amen? Amen. Amen. Precious saints, as we see this, it should affect us personally to worship and joy and humility and not just humility before God, but humility among one another. As each of us says, I'm the greatest outsider I know. I was the greatest outcast of the family of God that I know. And yet I've been brought in among you, among his people, to sit at table with you and feast and be satisfied in Christ. It should build the unity of the church as we are humbled by the grace we have received. Amen? Amen. Naomi and Ruth have their food needs met by Boaz, but we're reminded in the very closing line that she is still in need. It says that she is still living with her mother-in-law. She has no husband, no future lineage at this point that we know of. I know I give you a spoiler alert. And the harvest is over, we learn. So what's next? That's what we're left with. What's next? And I'll tell you, the Lord will keep proving himself good and faithful and steadfast in unrelenting love over and over again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.